How many of you have uh, read the old book by John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress? Talk about old school. That book was written in 1678. But it has a very special place in my life because I actually got saved through that book. Uh, Not through the reading of the book, but uh, through a Christian summer camp in my middle school years. Uh, the speaker every night just told the story a dramatic fashion of Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, it's an allegory. It has a story which is very interesting about a journey, but there's a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning behind that. He was a great storyteller, you know, every night. And then around the corner came the... I'll tell you tomorrow night. You know, one of those kind of guys. And the fire came down and he saw the mighty dragon and then... I'll tell you tomorrow night. You know, it's one of those kind of guys. But I got saved through the dramatic reading of that book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And I think that's really shaped my life and my journey with Jesus because I always picture my relationship with Jesus as a journey because of that book. Going through times of Jesus of good times and bad times and difficulties and and, and failure and success and high points and low points. I very much see my Christian life in terms of that because of that book. And that's why I'm really excited about the scripture we get to look at this morning. As you, if you've been around, we're just uh, in our second week in a little four-week series in the book of Colossians. And this book is all about the journey. Um, so I invite you to turn to Colossians 2 if you've got your Bible. Always great. I love our high-techness on the screen. Don't get lazy. Uh, make sure and see the Word of God in front of you in your own Bible in the way you're used to seeing it. I just encourage you to bring that. Keep uh, tabs on me. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. So bring the Word. But let's read it. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all and rule all of rule of all authority in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I feel like this morning we are sitting on a powder keg of dynamite. Dynamite for destruction of the enemy's purposes, and it's a significant morning. And I want to pray before we even dive in here. Let's do that. Lord, I thank you for the power of this scripture and the what is in what's in here lord lord i pray it be released in jesus name we just say any strongholds that have been put up in our lives come down now today in jesus name we want to see your power released lord not wise and persuasive words lord but a demonstration of your power today and freedom thank you for what you've been already speaking to us about in the worship in terms of freedom lord pray you do this and glorify yourself today amen well, as I've been looking at this scripture, it seems like it kind of breaks down into three parts, at least from my eyes. Uh, walking, watching, and knowing who you are. So let's look at the walking piece, starting in verse 6. He starts out and says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. 
This is a great visual picture of us on a journey with Jesus through life. Him next to us, teaching us, protecting us, speaking to us. It's an amazing picture of walking with Jesus. But he says, in the same way that you got saved, continue to walk in Jesus in that way. How many of you know that's a trap as a Christian? We understand salvation. We came to a place where we said, there's nothing I can do, Lord. There's nothing I can add. I can't do anything to to earn this thing, Lord. I just freely receive it. We get that when we come to know Christ. But then over time, we think we need to sort of do stuff in the walking part. And we shift gears. And Paul's just reminding the Colossians, in the same way you got saved, trusting Jesus fully, him doing everything, you doing nothing, Walk in him in that same way. Don't shift gears and try to accomplish stuff in your own physical strength. We want to continue to walk in the way that we were saved. And then he brings up four great pictures, word pictures. The first things he says, we walk in this way, rooted. This means in Christ and in community. Think about some of the trees you saw tipped up on the last windstorm. I looked carefully at a lot of the trees, and they were the ones that had the, the, the roots that were shallow, that went out thin. You know, there are other kinds of trees that have tap roots that go down deep into the soil. You don't see those trees usually uprooted. Uh, and what this picture is saying, when we walk with Jesus, we are rooted in him. Our roots go into him, into the reality of our salvation, and they go into a community like this that brings us strength and stability in our walk with Christ. He said, I want you to be rooted and I want you to be built up, Paul says. It's a great construction analogy of, you know, a strong and a good firm foundation that's built. And then increasingly that building gets built and you see more and more stories put on and more and more levels put on. That's a picture of our Christian life. When we're saved, it's not game over. It's not, okay, we're all done with this thing. Now we just go in and live our life and we're kind of placeholders until we die. No, God is doing things in our life. That's the exciting thing about the Christian life. Jesus is not finished with you yet. If you're a Christian and you can fog a mirror, I promise you there's more. Because he's got things he wants to do. He's got things he wants to build in your life, build into your life, build onto that foundation that's been rooted in Jesus Christ. So he says, I want you to be rooted, I want you to be built up, and then I want you to be established in the faith. This is a great word. Um, It's a picture of a guarantee of the validity of a purchase. It's like a down payment, meaning what, when this takes place, you, can, you know for sure this other thing is going to take place. It's, it's basically rooted and built up together plus time. That's the thing about the Christian life. Sometimes we see it as a one-week thing. When you first get saved, it's like, oh, you're all excited. But you know what? It's, it's one week. It's two weeks. It's two years. It's 10 years. It's 20 years. It's 50 years. It's a long-term kind of thing. And that's what this idea of established is. As you're being rooted and as you're being built up over time, God is establishing you. And if you've been in Christ for a number of years, a number of decades, I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that sense that, you know what? The things that used to sway me and scare me and freak me out 20 years ago, they don't anymore in Jesus. Because I've been walking with him and I see the reality of who he is. I've been rooted in him. And Lord, you're building things onto my life. And I see over time how amazing you are. That's why I love to hang around with people that have walked with Jesus in love and in sensitivity to the Holy Spirit 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Those people just about glow. What is it? That's the established part of the Christian faith. But it takes time. And then he says the fourth thing and the way you want to walk is this. Walk just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is such a great overflow of the Christian life. I think Thanksgiving doesn't get enough airtime. 
You know, the more I read the Word of God, Thanksgiving just keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. It's an overflow of being rooted and being grounded and being established is Thanksgiving. It just flows out of our life. I don't know if you've ever run into a somebody that, you know, the world owes them something. You know, those kind of people, they just give off that vibe. You know, you owe me something. The government owes me something. My job owes me something. It's just not fair. Everybody owes me something, right? Is it fun to be around people like that? They drain me. I just want to go, dude, catch a clue. You know, you live in Canada right there. That's enough. You know, you got, you turned the water on and hot water came out this morning. That's something, you know what I mean? But we, we can get in that mode. But Paul says the reality of walking with Jesus is a, a byproduct. It just oozes out of us as we grow is this issue of thanksgiving. So great picture of how this walk looks. But Paul is saying it's, it's the, in the same way it started, it completes, it continues and finishes by faith in Jesus and by the power of God. We're saved by faith in the complete work of Jesus and we grow in that same way by faith in the completed work of Jesus. Not by our own white knuckle strength and I'll grit my teeth and do it, but by cooperating with God, what God wants to do. So we want to walk as Christians. How many of you know that the Christian walk is not usually a graph that just goes steadily up evenly over time as the years go by? You know, I I have yet to meet a person whose Christian life has been like that. A lot of times it's like, whoa, 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 you know, it's up and down. It's two steps forward, one step back. That's probably the truer nature of the reality of the Christian life. That's why I love Pilgrim's Progress, because he's doing great, then he does something really stupid, and God saves him, and he goes back, he's great, did another dumb thing. You know, that's like my life. It's like the Israelites. It's just all through the Bible. So we know that that walk can also be hindered by the forces of the evil. Uh, the, the devil wants to do everything he can to keep us from being saved. Once he's lost that battle, he still wants to natter at us and taunt us and, and make us ineffective in our role for what God has for us, for our purposes. So he's not done with us, not done hassling us, even though he's lost the battle of our salvation. So we know that we also can get, he can be affected in our walk. And the thing that Paul talks about here in verse 8, he says, not only do I want you to be walking, I want you to be watching. Look at verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. This is a powerful word. It goes back to the idea of kidnapped. Basically, don't let anyone kidnap you on your journey with Jesus. It's a picture of a a plundering of a household, you know, taking all the the women and the children and all the goods away from them. It's a pretty powerful word. Paul says, be careful. I don't let that happen in your Christian walk. Don't get hijacked in your Christian walk. Now, in talking to the, to the church at Colossae, the people that lived in Colossae, which would be in modern-day Turkey now, uh, he, there's things that he says you, you want to watch for specifically. Here's what he says he wants them to watch for. He says, don't be taken captive by philosophy. Actually, you could, uh, the way it's written, it would be the philosophy. There's a definite article there, meaning there's a specific thing he's warning them about. We've talked about this in Bible school for those who've been part of that. But there was this toxic stew that was developing in Colossae that was a mix of sort of mystic Judaism and maybe some pagan stuff and some Roman stuff and some demonic stuff. It was all getting mixed up into this designer religion and being pushed on the church at Colossae. There were, there were pressures and teachers that were coming against them trying to sidetrack them in their faith. Paul says, don't get kidnapped by that philosophy, that way of thinking. He goes on to say, not only watch out for a philosophy, he says, watch out for empty deceit. This is all part of the same thing. 
So this is somebody who's coming against you with something that's intended to deceive you, and it's empty. There's no power in the thing. It's just some kind of human thinking and some kind of thing that was created by somebody you know, other than God. Watch out for empty deceit. According to human tradition, you know, there's things that sound wise in the world that sound like, oh, you know, moderation and everything. And, you know, there's all kinds of things we say like that. We say, oh, mm, mm, totally, totally, you know. But maybe they're not God things. You know, they're just things that are human traditions and they don't have any power. They don't have any uh, freedom. They don't bring any freedom in our lives. They sound like they should, but they're just human good thoughts. Paul says, be careful. That kind of thing can kidnap you and pull you off your journey in walking with Jesus. Finally, he says, watch out for that kind of philosophy that comes according to the elemental spirits of the world. Hard to know what he was talking about. Could be demonic forces here. That's probably the source of this thing anyway, however you look at it. But elemental meaning five easy steps. A, B, C. Anytime you, someone's telling you about Christianity, like, here's the five little steps. And our preachers are bad about this, really. I know we love to have five little steps and your life is wonderful. How many of you know it doesn't usually work out like that? Okay, so anytime those elemental principles like this and this and this and this and you're all good, that's probably not the reality of what it means to walk in the Christian life. And Paul's saying, be careful of this group that have got this human philosophy all just dialed in and you do this, you do this, and you're all good. But here's why he's so against this. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, all these things are not according to Christ. So this whole stew is coming out of another place other than the place of Christ. Think about the headwaters of a river. You know, if you go up and find the headwaters of a river, no matter where you go in the downstream in that river, that thing comes from that, it has a source in that place. And if you think about the two biggest rivers maybe in the world, the Nile and the Amazon, of course, they're on completely different continents, so there would never be a place where you'd be confused what the headwaters of that river is, the Nile or the Amazon. There, there's no place they intersect. There's no place they touch. And there are two great rivers in the spiritual realm, we know from the Word of God, the source of God and His goodness and the heavenly things and the angelic things of God. And there's another river, the demonic, the fallen, the satanic. But there's only two sources. There's only two places where things come from, ultimately, and he's saying, watch out for the headwaters that come from Satan. This is exactly what he's saying. All of this philosophy, this thing he's concerned about them, that wants to kidnap them, that wants to take them off their course, he says, this is not from Christ. Not according to Christ. This is a 2,000-year-old book written to a city that doesn't even exist now. But you know what? I feel like this is current news for us. Because we live in a media-rich environment. There are so many sources and so many ways to have voices and podcasts and TV and radio and all these things that can come. You know, verse of the day, which uh, fine for all this stuff. But I want you to say, be careful about what you're allowing into your life. What is the source? What is the headwaters of all that stuff, which could seem really like good thinking and, you know, wonderful little thought for the day kind of stuff? What are the headwaters in that? Paul says, if it doesn't come from Christ... It's empty and deceptive, and it's got to go. It wants to kidnap you. So I feel like this is a powerful message for us today. Be careful about what you're letting in. Be careful what your eye gate and your ear gate is letting into your life. What are the headwaters? Work it back. Think through. Is this, are the headwaters of this Jesus and the, and the Heavenly Father? Or is there another source in this? If there is, I don't want it in my life. I don't want that influence in my life because I don't want to get kidnapped.
So walking and watching. But then he goes on to something very significant uh, in verse 9. He talks about the beginnings of knowing who we are in Christ. I don't think we could ever spend enough time as Christians mining the depths of the reality of who we are in Jesus. And I think much of what I struggle with in my life is because I don't understand who I really am in Jesus. The fundamental change that's been made in Jesus. So Paul talks about knowing who we are. And it's interesting if you look in this passage, this little word in, in Jesus, in Christ, in him, with him, six times in this, these few little verses. That's a clue. Whenever you see Paul repeating words, he's got something he wants to get in and watch in him. So we see this six times. So what are some of these things? Well, let's look at them. This is our identity because we'll never be able to walk. We'll never be able to watch if we don't know who we are. That's the great thing. Pilgrim in the book of John Bunyan, he's trying to figure out all the time, who am I and how do I fit in? And then he starts to understand his identity as things goes along. If we don't understand our identity as Christians, we're, we're in a very difficult place for walking out our Christian life. And we're vulnerable to being kidnapped because we won't recognize who we are. So here's some things, rapid fire, that Paul gives us which help us to see who we are in him. Verse 8 I'm sorry, verse 9. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is speaking of Jesus. God dwells in Jesus. God and Jesus, God is, Jesus is God. We talked about that last week. And you have been filled in him. So this is a very significant thing. Jesus is in us. God is in us. This is the mystery that was revealed from the Old Testament that at the cross when Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit came, God is taking up his residence. He lives in us. We are filled with him, filled with God. That's such a different approach than where things were in the Old Testament. It's such a stunning change. God is not some, somewhere out there. We don't go to a temple or go to a, a city or, or, you know, bring a sacrifice. We don't go to this place. He is resident in us. And that's such a, such a revelation. We've got to get that into our, into our hearts that we have to understand that we're filled with God as Christians. God abides in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are. It doesn't seem like it, but... You know, stunning what God has done. You've been filled, who is the head and rule of all authority. The second thing is he brings up this issue of circumcision. Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical sign. It's a surgical procedure, usually maybe the eighth day to an Israelite male, after eight days after they were born. It's a very significant symbol in the Old Testament because it shows that that, that child and that people had been set apart for God. It was God saying, I'm going to give you a physical sign to show you that of all the nations in the earth, I've chosen you. And you're to be different. Different, set apart for me, holy, like we talked about. Special purposes. Circumcision was a very powerful thing for the, for the people of Israel. But when the church opened up at Pentecost and when Christ came and revealed that actually he's bringing the Jewish nation and the Gentiles into a new thing called the church, the physical circumcision was no longer required. But what does Paul say? You've been filled with him who's the head of all rule. In verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So as Christians, you have been circumcised spiritually. You've been set apart. God is saying to you and to the world, this is my special possession. They're different. They have a different purpose. I have chosen them. And we are spiritually circumcised in Christ. We're made 
different. We're made special. We're adopted by God. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. We have been spiritually circumcised. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. This is another reality of who we are in Christ. We have been buried with Jesus in baptism. Water baptism is an important thing. It's not just some tradition of the church that we can do or do without. It's a command of Jesus. Jesus was water baptized. His disciples were. The early church was water. Paul, it's just a normal part of the thing. And if you haven't been baptized in water as a Christian, man, I would encourage you to do it. You're missing an amazing blessing that God has given you. Because it's actually a literal picture. It's a skit if you will. When you go down into that water, you're associating with the death of Jesus Christ, his three days in the tomb. And when you come out of that water, it's a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And what Paul is reminding the Christians is that you've been buried in Jesus. You're dead. That old life, that old way of thinking, all those purposes that were against God before he came to know Christ, those are as dead as a corpse in the morgue. You've been buried with Christ in that baptism But more than that, as significant as that is, let's keep going, halfway through 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So not only have we been buried, our old way of thinking, our old nature is dead, we've been raised from the dead, we've been made a new creation. This is the part that our minds start to go tilt on. You know, Scripture says, in Christ, we're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're a fundamentally different creature in Jesus because of his resurrection from the dead and the resurrection power that he makes available to our life. Now, I get it. When the alarm goes off at 5 o'clock in the morning and I stumble into the bathroom to shave, I look in the mirror and go, new creation? (laughs) Unlikely, you know? But that's the truth of who I am in Jesus. I'm a fundamentally different cat. And the enemy wants to trash talk me and say, after I'm saved, after we've lost that battle, oh no, you'll never amount to anything. Those sins, they got a hold on you. Just give it up. You're such a loser, you know, in the spiritual realm. You don't deserve anything good. That's the trash talk from the enemy. And Paul says, no, you're dead. You're dead like a corpse. And you've been raised in a new way in the power of Christ. I'm not much of a Pentecostal preacher, but can I get an amen? Amen. Always wanted to do that. (laughs) I promise I won't do it again, okay? I I wanted to try it once, right? You've been raised from the dead. Now let's keep going. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Don't forget, all of us came from here. Apart from Christ, we were dead. There was no way for us to get to heaven, no way to get right with God. The uncircumcision of our flesh, meaning there was nothing special. We weren't set apart. We weren't anything except lost. And I don't care if that was four-year-olds for you or 40 when you came to know Christ. It's true no matter how much you screwed your life up. We all were headed for an eternity apart from Christ. But he says, you who were dead in this way, God made alive together with him, with Jesus. So God has brought us through death through resurrection and into life. Jesus said, I am the life. <laughs> you know, don't, don't buy this thing of the Christian life being like, oh, some slog, give me some more prunes to suck on because this is my cross to bear, you know, being a Christian. No, man, Christianity is life. Jesus' life, an abundant life, the kind that splashes over the top of the cup and falls on the table and makes a mess on the floor. That's Christian life. And that's what he has brought into our life. It's the reality of who we are. And he said, I don't feel that way. I get that. 
but it's still true objectively about who you are in Christ. This is what Paul's trying to say. I don't care if you feel it or not. It's true about who you are. And that's what we've got to stand on. That's the foundation we've got to build on, the truth of what God's word is. And Paul's saying, this is true about you. You are made alive in Christ. You have life in Jesus in you. Now let's look farther. Uh, the one that is probably the most powerful. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All of the things that we did, all of the things that were anti-God before Christ, all of the things we've messed up since Christ, those things have been forgiven in the blood of Jesus at the cross. I know you know this. I know you got it theologically in your head. But when we start to think about the reality of that, those things are forgiven. It changes the way we look at things. And when the enemy trash talks us and says, you're stuck in that cul-de-sac, no, that's not true. I've been forgiven from those things because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been made free from the enslavement of that sin and of that issue and whatever that situation is by the power of Jesus Christ. Again, you might not feel that, but it's the truth of the reality of what Jesus says. You have been forgiven all your trespasses. Not some, not most. Everything has been getting forgiven in Jesus. I don't care what you've done. I met people from time to time who had horrible lives, you know. Veterans that have done things. People that have done crimes. That have, you know, just so ashamed of what their past was. And they have a difficulty believing they could ever be redeemed. No one is outside of redemption in Jesus Christ. His power is bigger than any screw up and any horrible thing you could do. All of our sins have been forgiven. Now, how did he do this? This is where it gets fun for me. He set aside, or by, here's how he did this. Our forgiveness is verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. <laughs> what is this? What is the legal demands? The legal demands are what are outlined in the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. All those things that outlined who the holiness of God were, were to help us to see that when we do that stuff, what we earn is death and separation from God. That's the truth of what our sin should bring us in our life, is that kind of separation and that kind of death and that kind of lostness. That's the, that's the thing he's talking about. But he has canceled out this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's a powerful picture. It's wipe out. It's obliterate. You know, they didn't have erasers, but it's like written text smeared out and plastered over. Can't see it anymore. Completely gone. Eradicated. That weight, that, that judicial condemnation that came because of our sin has now been wiped out and obliterated in Jesus. This is part of the stunning part of where the forgiveness is. As far as the east is from the west. Has been obliterated. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside... Nailing it to the cross. We have a very wimpy little cross today, but you get the idea. I brought a cross in to say, you know, Jesus' cross is probably much bigger and much more railroad tie-ish. But you know what? I want you to get the picture of this. Here's what he did. He took those legal demands, those things that Satan had authority over you because of the sin that you have, the powers of darkness, and he nailed them to the cross. <laughs> That's the reality of those things that stood against you. They were correct. They were legal documents in the spiritual realm that should have brought you to a lifetime separated from God. But Jesus has nailed them to the cross in the completed work that he's done. But it gets better. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. (laughs) 
He put them to shame by triumphing over them. These are great pictures. So in the ancient times, in the Roman era, when somebody would vanquish a king or an army, all the generals and the top guys, they would first strip off all their weapons because that would mean that you know, they're, they're no more can do any harm. And they would usually strip them right down to their undies or maybe worse because that meant total humiliation. What they were saying was, you have no way to fight back anymore. There's not a stitch of of armament, of weaponry, of even clothing on you, you're completely disrobed and have been completely vanquished. That was what the the Romans would love to do with the people. Here's what Jesus has done. To the demonic forces, to Satan, that's exactly what he has completed for, for us on our behalf. They no longer have any weaponry. They've been made a public spectacle, disarmed. Put them to open shame. So, you know, the, the, the conquering kings would come back into the Colosseum in Rome, and what would they do? They'd have a rope around the neck of the guys they conquered, you know, and they'd be, those guys would be naked, and everybody would be boo-hush, you know. Sometimes they'd, they'd lay them on the ground, and, and their, their generals would come and put their foot on the neck of the vanquished foes. Pretty powerful picture, you know. Romans love to show, right? You get the picture? That's happened to the forces, the demonic forces and the satanic forces that have come against us. They've been stripped of their armor. They've been made a public spectacle. They've looked foolish by triumphing over them. No weapons left. Complete humiliation. Victory. Victory celebration in Jesus. Vanquished. That's the reality of what's coming against you. And yet... The demonic forces want to puff themselves up and make them seem big and lots of armor. And, you know, we can focus on the, on, the, on the devil too much. And we get, you know, this whole thing he wants us to see. But you know what? The truth of the scripture is that is already finished. The battle has been won at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that. It's done. The war is over. Now, certainly there are some mopping up operations taking place. I get that. But the war has been completely won already in Jesus. So in your life, that sin or that thing that keeps coming back to you, I want you to know that that, that the devil would want to make that thing bigger than it is. You want to make it seem like you're stuck with that, that you're chained and there's no key to get free of that. And the rest of your life, you have to live dragging that ball and chain in your life. That's not true. The reality of the scripture is, in Jesus, that enemy has been disarmed, humiliated, vanquished, and won. I mean, man, if I can't get excited about this, but we don't realize that in Christ. We forget those things in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is the objective reality in the spiritual realm is that the evil forces have been vanquished. And the evil forces in your life have been vanquished. Yeah, we're doing stuff and we're walking things out, but Jesus has the victory. He has triumphed. It's done in him. Now, can you imagine if I could get that in my little brain and start to live my life every day with that understanding? It's not a pride of my own life. Oh, I'm going to go whip the devil today. Don't be like that. It's just a realization that says, here is the judicial facts about a completed battle and a vanquished foe in Jesus at the cross. And I walk in him. He is in me. That power that vanquished death and sickness and all those things at the cross, that power lives in me. That resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is in me. Well, that'll give you some spiritual pluck, you know? Not in your own strength, 
but in the strength of what's completed. Do you see the, the mind game that we're fighting? Do you see how critical it is that we start to understand who we are in Jesus? The reality of the completed work in Jesus. Because we can be hobbled our whole Christian lives if we don't start to get a handle on this. We are victors. We are in the victor parade. Jesus allows us to put our feet on the neck of our enemies. Because they've already been vanquished. Just to remind us. It's completely done. So where's all this going? Well, here's where it's going for me. I just want to remind you how the book ends. Jesus wins. Spoiler alert if you want to read Revelation. He wins. It's not even a contest. He speaks a word and this big sword comes out and slays all the armies of the devil. It's, it's not even a contest. Jesus wins and because he is in us and we are in him as his body, we win. Okay, so we know that this thing turns out this way. But what we have to see is even though that is in a future time, that complete and final vanquishing, the war is already over. God lives in us and he's victorious right now in us. Oh, Lord, help us to get this in. Help us to get this in, Lord. We need this. We need to know who we are. Yeah, we need to walk and we need to watch, but we need to know who we are in Jesus because it changes everything when the Holy Spirit begins to bring a revelation of who we are. We're not walking out of defeat. We're not walking out of a glass half full. We are in a triumphal procession behind the king who's already been victorious in the cross. Invite the worship team if they want to come up. I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, this morning. And I want to just give you a chance to respond. Sometimes it's important to be able to take a step. And and, uh, this picture of Jesus nailing sin to the cross, I just felt like, you know what? It might be a time for us to be able to do that together today. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Maybe there's something in your life that you just feel like you cannot get free of. You feel like it's a trap. I invite you just to come and write it here. Fold it in half. Tell the Lord, I'm sick of this. Lord, I repent and turn from this thing. I don't buy the lie that this is my lot for the rest of my life, Lord. And I just invite you to come and nail it to the cross. Because it actually already has been nailed there anyway. It's already done. But it might be helpful for you to to remind yourself to come up and physically do that for that thing. Declare that thing dead over you. I don't know if it's sickness or a sin or something that's besetting you that's already been won in Jesus. Why don't you come up and do that? I've got hammers and nails. There's some stickers here. If you don't feel like hammering, you can just put them on there. We're going to destroy these. They're not going to be red. I'll take them and destroy them afterwards because they're already finished in Jesus. We're not doing something and accomplishing something here. We're just reminding ourselves it's already been done. Okay? So let's stand. Just come up if you want to do this, and we're going to worship for a while.